sections of Chicago the guidebooks don't refer to. You can't blame them, really. The guidebooks function is to sell the glamour and excitement of our windy city. And whichever way you dress it up, old age is neither glamorous nor exciting. Roosevelt Heights used to be a plush neighborhood. But the plush neighbors moved uptown, leaving the old people. And old people don't move easily. They become set in their surroundings. Their friends live next door. They've been going to the same store for 25 years. And probably most important of all, they can't afford to relocate, even if they wanted to. The battle of fixed income versus galloping inflation never ends. But even inflation took a backseat here in Roosevelt Heights, as a far greater fear overtook the residents, a terror which effectively dwarfed everything else. October 14th, one Harry Starman was about to break the law. He'd done it before many times. Gambling on Friday night was forbidden by Hebrew law. So, to escape his wife and to escape going to Temple, Harry and his cohorts took drastic measures. That was the voice of reporter Carl Kolchak from the case known as Horror in the Heights, a.k.a. the Rakshasa. Boy, that's going to be a tongue twister this episode. It's the 11th episode of the original Night Stalker. It was directed by Michael T. Caffey and written by Jimmy Sangster. It originally aired on December 20th, 1974. Yes, folks, this is a very special Christmas episode. Maybe. I'm your host, Mike White, and joining me is my partner in crime, Chris Dashu. I'm just sitting here perma-triggered. There were so many swastikas in this episode, it it really offended me deeply to my core. Oh, wait, those are Hindu swastikas. Never mind, it's fine. I think that was some sort of a new top coming out of Zazu, uh, whoever makes uh, Melania Trump's outfits. It could be. Also joining us is special guest, co-host Richard Haddam. Thanks for having me, you guys. You have no idea how excited I am to be here. I am thrilled. And this is what happens when you blow us up on Twitter. You're here. Look, you're on Twitter one second, and then you're on the podcast the next. Boom. Right. My, in other words, my evil plan worked out perfectly. <laughs> Twitter works, folks. That's all I'm going to say. Twitter works. Right. And now I get to talk to two other full-grown adults about the Night Stalker, which is what I've wanted to do since I was eight years old. So I'm a happy man. You've got a lot of pent-up energy on this, I can tell. Well, so wait, let me ask you guys a question, though. What's really weird is listening to your, your other episodes, it almost sounds like you have not ever seen the episodes until you see them in preparation for the show. Is, is that right? That is not correct. We've actually both watched The Night Stalker quite a few times, I imagine. This was a favorite of Chris and his dad's, and this was me watching this on, like, Sci-Fi Channel back when it was still spelled correctly, and uh, also watching it on Netflix. But when it comes to this, like, it's been a few years since I've seen this. And how about you, Chris? Has it been a, a little while for you? Well, like you said, uh, there's well, there's also a difference here between watching something for entertainment's sake, which is the way I used to do things, and then watching stuff, watching stuff critically. And so now at this point... Because I've been doing this for so long, not just cold check tapes, but also with my own movie podcast. Similarly with yourself, Mike, when you watch something critically, it's vastly different than if you're watching it just for fun. Not every show is like, let's say, Westworld, where you have to be like mentally devoted to the show and you're doing outside preparation for the show. Some shows you can just enjoy for entertainment's sake. Cold check is one of those shows where you're not watching it for what we're doing, which is giving a like an actual breakdown of the, of the episode as a whole. So yeah, I've seen it all before. It's just, this is a little different than 
just watching it casually when I was like 16. Okay, so that brings up a point because it's almost like what age are you when you first start watching Colsack the Night Stalker? I mean, for me, I was literally eight years old in 1975 in the spring when I saw my first episode. I'm talking about it like like I lost my virginity. I'll continue. It was April 25th, 1975, and it was the Spanish Moss murders. And I was over at my cousin's house. And they were like, oh, we got to watch this show tonight, this thing, The Night Stalker. And I'm like, what's that? And they're like, it's cool. You'll love it. This reporter goes hunting monsters. And I'm like, I don't understand. So we watch. And at 8 o'clock, I'm one person. And by 9 o'clock, I'm a different person. And I've been that 9 o'clock person uh, for, for the next 43 years. So I'm when I watch the episodes, I'm coming at them as an 8-year-old to a certain extent. And of course, there's the other part of my brain, because I work in television, that goes, okay, that probably could have been executed better. But I fall prey to what I think a lot of people do with this show, is this sort of sentimental attachment, where it's unapproachable, and you can't ever talk about it critically, which is why, you know, listening to Chris, I was saying, I, there's always this sort of breathless sort of excitement of, oh my God, is he going to, is, is he going to, is he going to shoot a very well-deserved crossbow arrow into my childhood dreams? And, and, and then I just sit on the edge of my chair waiting for it to happen. Well, and that's the thing is, I, I've said this before, and this is not a knock at anyone, but I mean, and this is goes for stuff that I like as well, that I've watched, you know, when I was a teenager, nostalgia blinders are a thing. And being able to get past your nostalgia blinders and kind of your nostalgia love for things, uh, I think is important. I mean, you look at uh, a fan base for something like, say, Star Wars or Star Trek or any of the big fandoms, and there's a lot of poo-pooing of people that are critical, and it's, oh, you know, you can't be critical of it. It's just Star Wars. It's like, but, but we can, and we don't have to constantly just say, well, nostalgia, and we just write it off as nostalgia. If you're aware of it and you're okay with it and you're just saying I love it and it's nostalgic for me that's fine but refusing to admit that nostalgia is kind of shaping your judgment on something I think is wholly misguided and unfortunately there are a lot of shows with fan bases that have a nostalgia heavy leaning that refuse to believe that there could ever be anything wrong with the show even when the show has three invisible monsters in it well, yeah, they act like the nostalgia is like this weird invisible shield that will, will protect something forever from any kind of critical viewpoint. It's funny. So it sounds like you said that you came to the Night Stalker for the first time at 16. And so the show that I came to when I was 16 and then like totally fell helplessly in love with, but now I watch it and go, okay, some were better than others was the A-team. And that's one where, I mean, I really have to pick and choose and go, okay, I know why I like that. I know what I thought was cool about that episode. And frankly, even at the time, I sort of knew they weren't all great, but I guess I just loved the concept so much. And I was 16 and full of hormones that I, I, I forgave a lot. But I, I even have more of a perspective on that show, in a way, than I do for Kolchak. Once I got into that Robert Vaughn territory with the A-Team, it was kind of over for me, but I think I had grown out of it by that time. 
Oh, totally. No, I, I was out of it by the third season, but but it was the show. Oddly enough, that was the show that got me into TV writing when I when I was in high school, and I started watching that show. That was the one that made me go, "Oh, wait a second, I think I can do this." And I actually sat down and wrote an A team script in my junior year of high school because the, the the show was so episodic and so formulaic in a way that I knew, "Oh, I think I can do this," and I loved it so much that I just wanted to spend extra time thinking about it. And so that's what I did. And so I wrote a few episodes, I mean, just for myself trying to, you know, sell them as a 16 year old, you know, like a normal sane person does. But yeah, it was shocking that even by fourth season, I think when culture club went on, I, I think that's when I was out. Yeah. I still remember the TV ads of that boy, George meets Mr. T. That was something. Ah, I'm Cowboy George. And I'm Boy George. Pick your pick. Tuesday, the 18. Be there, George. <laughs> Another show that I watched kind of around the same time I watched Kolchak that I admittedly have the nostalgia blinders on to some extent, and I try not to rewatch it too much now, is The X-Files. I have a lot of nostalgia for that show, because that's still... It sits near the top of my favorite TV shows, but... I mean, I go back and watch some of those episodes, and some of those episodes are really bad. Even at the time I was watching The X-Files, and I think I'm older than you guys. I think I'm, I don't know if I'm a lot or a little, but... Well, I was born in 1990, so... <laughs> yeah, so I'm younger than everybody in this... Everybody on this podcast, I'm younger than them. Uh, you are six years older than I am, Richard. Okay, 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 thank God. Okay, then, Mike, I'll just talk to you. You know when you can't get up in the morning because your knees hurt? No, I'm just kidding. The lumbago. I remember loving watching that show. But even then, and I I was well into my adulthood by that point, I remember sort of thinking, you know, the way it breaks down with the X-Files is one out of four episodes is amazing. One out of four episodes is kind of unwatchable and I never need to see it again. And then the other two are kind of in the middle. You know, it's like, oh, they, you know, they, they had good things in them, but they weren't, like, amazing. And and that was my way of being critical about that show. But now I look back and I go, fuck, if, if every fourth episode is great, that's great. You know, that's a higher average than a lot of shows I watch. Well, the thing is with a show that has 20-something episodes a season, that's a pretty good number. And so when you look at a show like Kolchak, where it seems that every other episode is good every three episodes is good that number of one in four out of 20 versus one in three out of 20 and that's it only 20 episodes you know it's you kind of are wishing maybe that the numbers were better for Kolchak but again with the X-Files I've kind of come to terms with the show and my feelings towards it and especially with the rebooted seasons of the show that just they should have just given up. They should have just stopped. Oh, really? Okay, because because I, I I never know. I mean, I talk to other people. Some of them are TV writers. Some of them are just fans. And I didn't watch any of the reboots, but I I've heard vastly different opinions. Some people are like it's awesome, and other people are like what you just said. Don't ever go back. Yeah, well, and that's the thing. I mean, you'll get the same reaction from people when I mean when we've posted episodes of of this show when we talk about. The 2005 cold check. People want to run us out of town with pitchforks when we talk about the 2005 Night Stalker because in their minds, and maybe rightfully so, it's no better than – our opinion is that 
that this that the Night Stalker from 2005 isn't worth talking about because it can't even hold a candle to the original show. By the way, and I want to really, really compliment you guys on the interviews you get. I'm certainly not talking about this because this is just us bullshitting around. But the Cy Chermak and the Frank Spotnitz and the Mark Dewitziak, that stuff is pure gold, especially Dewitziak, but also Spotnitz. I mean, going back and talking to anyone who works in TV about a show that was not a hit is a master class in the way television is made. And that interview with him is worth its weight in gold. It really is. And it's, and I have, I have been down that road and I know so many people who have been down that road of the best intentions getting, you know, washing up on the shore of studio and network reality, as it were. And, and I, I have a lot more sympathy and a lot more forgiveness because I hear that story and I'm like, God, he is not kidding around. I mean, I know those people. I know the people he was sitting in a room talking to. And I'm like, yep. That's about right. That's that's what's going to happen, you know? And a funny piece of trivia, uh, if you have listened to our Frank Spotnitz interview, and I don't think we've ever mentioned this, Mike, but I think you know what I'm going to say. We recorded the interview with Frank Spotnitz. Was it the day before he ended up being thrown off of Man in the High Tower? And we were talking. You you mentioned it to him because I, I, I've never seen the show, but you mentioned it to him. And then the next day, and I remember we were messaging back and forth, and I was like, oh, shit. Like, that's... So was he was he told to leave or was it I mean do we know what happened there? <laughs> He's still talking about it with us the day before. Yeah, I think it might have taken him by surprise because it was just like, oh yeah, uh, Frank Spotnitz is out as showrunner. Here's this new showrunner. Let's talk about this episode and let's talk about that amazing outfit that Phil Silvers is wearing in this one. I was so happy to see Phil Silvers. You know, that's the thing with Kolchak is you got top guest stars coming in every single week and this was no exception i was so happy to see him he's amazing and you know you guys were talking earlier i don't know if you ever quite landed on it and you sort of brushed up against it in the Cy Chermak interview the thing to realize with all these people coming through larry storch jim backus i mean dick godier bill silvers i mean you know all the way down the line dick van patten for the most part, these people were were under contract to Universal, so they just had their they didn't have to go out of their way, and it was very easy to just go, "Hey, Scatman, you got a free afternoon? Would you mind putting on this weird vest and talking in a Cajun accent and doing this zombie episode?" They had access to all those people because they were all under contract, and you'll see the same thing in shows like The Rockford Files, which was also Universal and debuted on the very same night one hour later on another network, but it was Kolshak was eight, Rockford was nine, and these people do turn up and it's this it's it's amazing. But they were they were universal contract players. Chris, I'm curious, what did you think of Horror in the Heights? I actually liked it a lot. I thought it was a lot of fun. I thought the monster I, let's put it this way, there's a reason you only see the monster from behind <laughs> until the very end. Because, man, it is goofy when you finally see it. It, it looks like, and this is going to be a, a deep reference, it looks like John C. Riley as Bigfoot from Tenacious Day in the Pick of Destiny. It's not scary at all from the front, but from behind, I mean, there's a sense of what does it look like? What, when are we going to see its face? So, And it's obviously imposing. I, I think you could have gotten Richard Keel for this episode and had an actual like size-wise imposing actor because... Uh, the person who's playing the Rakshasa isn't much taller than Kolchak. 
he's, it's not like a giant lumbering brute like in Spanish Moss Murders or Bad Medicine. But I mean, other than that, I thought it was a fun episode. I liked the interplay back and forth at the end uh, between Kolshek and Miss Emily, the Rakshasa Miss Emily. I like the the Miss Emily character is like in every episode now and has like a an interesting kind of side story that kind of has a payoff. And you get to see more of Vincenzo. You get to see more of The Office again, which is if you've listened to this podcast at all, you know that that for me, is one of the better parts of the show is the interplay between Vincenzo and Kolshak and uh, Updike and Miss Emily. So I actually found the creepiest part of the monster to be when it was the people they trust. And they were just sort of silently standing there. Or the way that one cop's mom just sort of was standing there and then walked behind the crates. And even the guy at the very beginning, the, the, the rabbi, Rabbi Shulman, how they sort of filming with a like a fisheye lens like something about just the just the people standing there and not saying anything to me was creepier than a full head-on view of the rakshasa well and the thing i didn't understand at the end was all of a sudden the rakshasa is talking it never talks at all and then it starts talking and that to me i thought there was gonna i thought he was gonna like tell miss emily to like duck and he was gonna shoot the rakshasa behind her or something to that effect, because that's very much a trope that you've seen before that he shoots, but it's actually behind her or something. But the fact that all of a sudden the Rakshasa starts talking at the end of the episode was was a little strange, right? It, it almost didn't make any sense with anything else that was going on from the beginning of the episode. And it could be looked at as a narrative cheat because none of the other ones talk. So suddenly it's like, oh, wait a second. So from an audience point of view, you're like, Oh shit, maybe it is Miss Emily. And what's really interesting is that when you read the script, even as she's coming up to him and starts to talk, they're writing in those over the shoulder of the monster shots. So in the script, they're tipping to the audience, oh no, it's really the monster. But then in the actual episode, they do something really smart, which is they don't do that. So that as a viewer, you're like, oh, wait a second. Wait, this one's talking oh, crap, maybe it is. And just for, for the briefest second, you're in the point of view of someone, well, in this case, Carl Kolschak, going, oh, crap, am I actually going to shoot her? In fact, one of my few complaints about this episode is that he doesn't seem all that torn, you know? He's sort of like, okay, guess I'm going to shoot you. <laughs> he has that sort of look on his face like, all right, I told you to stop, old lady. Well, you're old. I guess I'll just waste you. But it was an interesting little gag to add that. Again, you can look at it as a cheat or or just a, a device to increase Carl's jeopardy. The one thing I was really happy about is that this could have gone in a completely wrong direction. And it would have been, oh, we heard Buck talk to Rabbi Shulman. So we think it's Rabbi Shulman and we're going to pursue this lead that it's him throughout the entire episode and keep trying to pin blame onto somebody and then no 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 we now think it's that the, it's this desk sergeant or somebody or the other the alternate thing that we kind of experienced last week with malum or last month with malum chris was oh now we think it's carl kolchak because we heard the one guy crying out we heard phil silvers crying out you know mr kolchak's name so now the cops will be like, oh, well, we have witnesses that say that it was you, Carl, that you were the one that attacked this guy and murdered him. So I'm glad they didn't go down that road. They really dodged a bullet there. I'm really disappointed that you even brought up Malum. Like, you have no idea how disappointed I am that you brought up Malum. That episode is just, 
I'm going to go on record and say it's the worst thing we've watched this entire time we've done this podcast is Malum. That should be a Malum moratorium. We never talk about it again because it is, it struggles to even tell a coherent story. And if that's a problem, just at a base level, why would you even watch it? One of the reasons why this episode succeeds so well is that it was written by Jimmy Sangster, who has, you know, we've seen other writers come to this show and they've had some good experience. We've seen some really strong writers on here before, but this guy, he lived and breathed horror. Like he was the guy behind the screenplay for The Crawling Eye for tons of Hammer films, including Horror of Dracula, which is one of my favorite Hammer movies. So he had done tons of work. And so I'm sure he probably was able to dash off Kolchak's script without very much problem at all. And even to have the idea to not make this a golem story. Here we are in this Jewish neighborhood. So you expect, okay, it's going to be Rabbi Shulman and he's created a golem and he's going out and he's, you know, murdering people on this guy's command, especially that Phil Silvers and his buddies are breaking Sabbath at the beginning and they're playing amongst all this trafe. They're at this uh, meat warehouse and all this stuff. So it's just like, yeah, this is a terrible thing, you know, and so maybe he's getting his re- revenge on all the people who are out there breaking Sabbath and doing awful things, going to see R-rated movies and all this kind of stuff. But no, it's not that, that he twists it and it becomes this bizarro uh, Hindu villain monster I was like, oh, okay, that's really clever to mix those two cultures together in that they all hinge upon the the swastika. I thought it was a really great idea that they think that this Hindu guy in town is a Nazi because he's got swastikas all over, but he's doing it as a totem to protect himself against Rakshasa. This is sort of like a poignant episode because it's about these people who – who kind of depend on each other and, and they're, they're like, they sort of feel particularly vulnerable. And, and the notion that this is a monster that, that uh, looks like somebody you trust makes it even more sort of like, like a heartbreaking and sort of like emotionally upsetting. It's like, Oh my God, you know, they, they, they depend on trusting their rabbi or their, the local cop or whatever. And, and they're just, they're just easy prey. So um, yeah, I, I, I definitely felt that. The the whole point of this episode with the Hindu angle was to trick the audience into thinking it was a Nazi thing initially. At first, it's kind of a bait and switch. Yeah, it, it works. I mean, I'll be honest. It, I mean, I I mean, as someone who is knowledgeable about Hinduism and I've traveled, I mean, I know what the swastika is outside of. Nazism. So it wasn't it wasn't like, oh, my God, to me. But I mean, there are plenty of people out there that are not as well versed in world religions and cultures. So, I mean, I would assume some people probably when they saw this in the 70s, probably wigged out or were like, oh, my God, Nazis. Did you guys like uh, research the Rakshasa? Because again, being an insane person when I was young and there was like one Indian American person at my high school I had to go up and ask them if they knew about the Rakshasa and they like actually reacted. They're like, Oh, what are you talking about? Yeah. That's like really bad. 
And apparently, apparently it's a real thing. It's like, it doesn't necessarily disguise itself as a person you trust, but it'll disguise itself as like, like a goat or a cow or just sort of like, like, like a stray, uh, you know, a head of cattle that you, that, you know, a farmer or someone will have to go uh, round up and then, and then it'll lead you out into the woods. And then once it's got you alone, then it turns into the monster and it gets you. Well, it was really weird because my wife is an avid reader and she was like, oh, that's a Rakshasa? And I was like, yeah. And she was like, oh, hold on a second. And she hands me her Kindle and she's reading a book where there is, they're talking about a Rakshasa for like five pages. And I'm just like, what the hell? She's like, oh yeah, I'm, I was reading this just now. I was like, that is too bizarre. So I got to read whoever this author was, their interpretation of it. And it followed along with a lot of the things that were in this episode as well as that were in Wikipedia. But yeah, there's a whole other thing to this. And yeah, to your point, it wasn't necessarily let's just disguise ourselves as other people. There was a whole story to it. And the, the, I mean, the tears, that's the thing that always gets me with the Hindu gods and their system is just the hierarchy of gods and uh, some of these creatures and stuff. So it's just, it was to read the, um, the Wikipedia article about this almost made me cross my eyes. It's one of the most conceptual episodes. It's like, there's a, it's not just a, you know, haunted suit of armor, which is cool, but it's like, oh, that's really weird. That's that kind of a mind fuck. And, it le- and you know, my favorite line in the whole episode is when Carl Kolchak says to the old Indian guy, he will present himself to you as someone you know and trust. I got one problem, Pop. There isn't anyone that I trust. That was nice. I like that. It's so it's such a perfect, you know, cynical kind of Carl Kolchak. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the few moments you look it, like he says something about himself, but he, he usually doesn't. But for him to say that, you're like, oh, yeah, that explains a lot. There really isn't anyone that you trust. And then, of course, they give us someone that he, of course, does trust, which is also beautiful. I did appreciate in this episode the fact that they also go to the well with like an actual mythological creature from like mythology in quotations, Hindu mythology, as opposed to just like a zombie or a werewolf or something kind of out of the, the well that we've seen before. Yeah. It's not a universal monster. Yeah. Which is nice. The movie company, not the, (laughs) not the term. Yeah. 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 I, I appreciated that more than like werewolf zombie, any combination of like, Stuff we've seen before. Like, this is a novel concept. This is a novel monster. This is not something you see on other shows. This is something unique and different. Kind of like the Diablero or the Machi Mantau. Machi Manito. <laughs> I mean, I, just, I mean, yeah. Machi Manito, Machi Mantau. They said it like four different ways in the episode, so. Man cow in the morning. <laughs> it's like somehow they really wanted to be saying Manitou, but it wasn't Manitou. So it was Manito. But yeah, I know you're right. I mean, when you say it's not a universal monster like universal films, they really do. I mean, they do the werewolf. They do the mummy. And even Mr. Ring is, is kind of a Frankenstein in a way. I mean, I know we haven't gotten there yet, but I mean, in a way, they do find the equivalence of all those monsters. Yeah, and I'm going to be honest, outside of the vampire, um, none of them have been done very well. Especially not the werewolf. That episode is a bummer, 
because it has such potential. That is correct. When, when Kolchak is walking around a cruise ship with a shotgun, I'm excited. And the fact that it did not live up to that promise was was disappointing. So yeah, yeah I, I do agree with you there. And the worm just gets thrown over the boat. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, dude. Yeah. Otherwise, <laughs> uh, evidence. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, man. The fact that the show is still doing this 11 episodes in is just, oh, man. He's never going to convince anyone, right, at this point? like They do a couple of weird things in, in this show, and, and, I, and I get reminded of it every once in a while. And I think the werewolf basically did it, too, because he was on a cruise ship at sea. But it's not enough that he has to go hunt down this thing. He has to be, in so many of the episodes, he has to be trapped with it. Like in the Spanish Moss Murders, he's trapped down there. Like they back a truck up over that manhole cover. And in the zombie, he's lying down awkwardly next to it in the back of a hearse. You know, he doesn't have a lot of mobility. They they, they kind of do go out of their way. Even in the Diablero, it's like he's at the top of a building. He's 40 stories up. He's exhausted. And he breaks the one thing that is supposed to kill the monster. I mean, there, there's that weird element, but I always really appreciated that. You know, have you guys kind of touched on that or even like, has it come up on your radar? You know, I hadn't thought about it, but well, I mean, my normal complaint with the monsters is that the monsters end up just being like, just disappearing or they have like a really unsatisfying ending to them. Like there's a conclusion to the monsters that is not befitting of the monsters. Like the Spanish Moss murders where he's just kind of like, pokes it with a stick and it dies or in the werewolf where he just gets summarily thrown over a boat. I mean, normally the monsters don't get like a, a really like they don't get their comeuppance as it were, but I hadn't thought about like Kolchak getting like trapped with them. Well, it sort of goes hand in hand with something that the show does and, and the movies did. And I guess I'm saying in comparison to things now where, where they really like Kolchak looks terrified and he's running away. <laughs> he runs away from the zombie. He runs away from the Spanish moss monster. There's none of this, all right, I'm going in there. He does go in there. But then at a certain point, he's like, even in the Ripper, he's like, get me the fuck out of here. I can't take it anymore. I'm fucking sweating bullets. And I love that because shows don't do that anymore. Yeah, Carl is a reluctant hero for sure. He is not the badass. You know, even though he's dispatched all of these creatures, he's not like got a, you know, notch on his belt buckle or something. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what I love. And I think, I think that's what appealed to the eight year old, you know, in, you know, everyone who saw that show and then decided, Oh my God, I've, I've either got to go be a reporter, uh, a vampire killer or a TV writer. Those were the three options. Well, I think it's also nice that he gets humiliated every single episode and that there is, you know, you guys were just talking about the lack of evidence and that every single time there's no, no proof, you know, other than maybe like a boot or some, you know, uh, water or some moss or whatever, right. you know, there's, there's no proof. So he never is able to say, look, you know, like I've been redeemed. You have to believe me now every single time. And he's got Vincenzo there to always keep him humble and to always just ride his ass and just tell him what a piece of shit he is. And that's, and that's another problem that I have, I'm starting to have with the show is that 
and this is probably just a product of the time. It is a product of the time. It's not a probably. Their relationship hasn't really gone anywhere. It hasn't done anything. It's just, it's static. And with a show now, I mean, with TV in 2018, and Richard, you know this, having written TV in 2018, people check out if it if the relationship stays static. Even on the worst TV shows imaginable, and I'm talking like, I don't know, two and a half men or something like that. Like the relationships don't stay static because people will check out Big Bang Theory. People check out. And in this show, in the the way it was in the 70s, there people didn't care as much about stuff like that. That wasn't as important. That's not what people were looking for. And so the, the static nature of their relationships with Carl and Vincenzo and Carl and Ron and Carl and Miss Emily – and Carl, when it was Monique Marmelstein way back in the day, um, it's static and static relationships in shows that it just, it's, it's disappointing because it's like, there could be so much more to this. They could build upon this so much more and they just don't. You're a hundred percent correct. And it really was just a fact, a fact of TV in the seventies and early eighties. There just, there was always a total reset. In fact, it would have been strange. Like there was very little continuing overall mythology or storyline in, in any of these shows. I mean, again, to talk about the Rockford Files, which is another show of that era, you know, you'd have episodes, you know, in the middle of the third season where suddenly we meet, you know, the client is some woman that Rockford was engaged to for five years and was going to marry and then didn't. You've never heard of her. She does the episode. He solves her case or whatever. They almost get back together. They don't. And then you never hear about her ever again. And that's the way TV was. You could do that. In fact, that's what, that's what it all was. And, and networks were very, very against um, ongoing storylines because they knew that these shows were going to sell into syndication and be aired out of order. And they really wanted it to be just like one is like – Episode one is the same as episode 17 is the same as episode 67. And that was a reality of what TV was at the time. And now it's the total opposite. Now, if you do not have ongoing storylines, even in a situation comedy, it's considered strange. I mean, you can't just do a reset. Yeah, I think the one where they kind of do that these days still is just The Simpsons, but they'll still make references to things. But I always love, at least in the, the good era of The Simpsons, when Lisa would pointedly, you know, say like, "Don't worry, everything will be solved by the end of the half hour." Yeah, so they're 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 taking it into uh, in, into consideration. They're rewarding the audience and and the audience's knowledge that uh, this is wrong. I did notice, and I, I'm interested to see if you guys had any feelings about this or it it registered with you at all. That the tone of this episode was a little bit different in terms of the performances, especially in the first half between Kolshak and especially like Vincenzo and even maybe the police guy. It was very quiet. There wasn't a lot of, you know, shouting and slamming around. And, and I, I like, for instance, I love the scene where Kolshak comes back from that first death and he's like, Tony, just to sign the waiver, I, I, I gave Harry a few bucks. He's an old guy. Just That was nice. Yeah, it was just like, oh my God, it's like, it's like Kolchak has sort of his heart. And, and then, and then later there was this scene where Kolchak is like in the police department and they're interrogating him and he screams. And then Tony comes in and he's like, hey, wait a second. You guys are like, I've heard you've got bad reputations as cops. And this is one of my reporters. What's your name? How is that spelled? And I'm like, 
wow, Tony's kind of like, he's got Carl's back. And that like never happens. Did you notice this? That was very nice. And I liked that Tony just kind of takes what Ron says in stride. And like, he almost yells at Ron to be like, what the fuck are you talking about? But then he like waits, kind of dismisses him. And then he's just like, ah, this guy's going to drive me crazy. Totally. Absolutely. In fact, you know, what's funny about that, Mike, is that that's also different from the script. Because in the script, he goes, you know, Ron, in your own special way, you're you're a psychotic. <laughs> but he doesn't say that in the episode. In the episode, he goes, well, thank you very much, Ron. Th- th- thank you very much. And he just tries to blow past it. There's nice little things that aren't in the script that are in the episode. Like, even after he dismisses Carl at one point, and then he picks up the phone and is ordering, like, dinner or lunch or something. And it's just like, okay, that's a nice touch. Because Tony is always eating in the office. Like, we've we've seen that so many times. Like, he is so dedicated to his job that I think he takes nine out of ten meals inside of the office. But my favorite was when he had, like, a full meal delivered. And he was, like, sitting in, like, his, like, Sunday best at, like, a table with candles eating in his office. Like, that was just – you can't beat that. Wasn't there a waiter Standing there, in his office. Yeah, there was. But I think that was from like that I think that was something to do with like the like the heads of INS or something to that effect, right? It was, it was like they were doing something nice for him. Right, and then Carl probably comes in and des- describes something incredibly gross and Tony can't even eat the meal, right? <laughs> I think so. Oh, it was in the UFO. Was it in the UFO episode and he's talking about the uh the uh, bone marrow? And Tony is probably eating Osabuco or something. Yeah, sounds about right. Carl's ruining it. <laughs> I don't know. There was just like, there was a weird, like, almost feeling of, of like world weariness with all the characters. It's like everyone was a little bit beaten down in this episode. And I keep trying to think, God, was it, were they just tired? Was it just like episode 11 and everyone was just like, didn't have the energy? Or is that, you know, or did the director bring that? I mean, maybe the director decided, you know what, this one's going to be kind of a, a more quiet contemplative episode. I mean, I, I, I really don't know. I was very happy that they didn't make Jewishness weird. And they also didn't make, and this could have been really easy to do, they didn't make Hinduism and being Indian weird either. It wasn't like this was so super exotic kind of thing and just like, oh, you know, we don't know what's going on. Like, Carl sits down to, and this I had a problem with, beef curry? You don't have beef well, curry. Well, hold guys. on. Hold on. People who are non or are Muslims that live in India eat beef curry all the time. However, the likelihood that that's the case in this show, them knowing that, not so much. Now, if they had said lamb curry, completely fine. But the Rakshasa is Hindu. It's supposed to be a Hindu man who runs the restaurant, who practices, he's practicing Hindu. So yeah, the, the, the likelihood of beef curry being on the menu is very small. I mean, the, the thing that I didn't like was that whole, and this is again, product of the time. So, you know, let it be. you know, oh, Indian cuisine is weird. Or pas, passe. Yeah, this is passe at this point. I mean, at this point, 2018, it's passe. 1974, obviously, you know, non, they're not selling non down at the local grocery store. Now, if you go to Target, they've got non sitting in the, sitting in the bread department, like tortillas and everything else. So it's not as bizarre as it quote unquote used to be. And Magoombek, what, what, uh, what the guy says, Magoombek, 
I've been going to Indian restaurants for 30 years looking for a back and uh, nothing, nothing. Can't find it. Well, and, they, and again, they also do the thing where it's like, oh, you're already sick. It's already making you sick. It's like, oh, it's like, <sighs> it's got to roll your eyes a little bit at that. Like, Yeah, though that was nice that it was Barry the waiter instead of like an actual Indian guy that it was this Jewish guy working at the at the Indian restaurant. I was like, oh, that's kind of nice because he's in the neighborhood and there's only like the one Indian guy. And it's nice he's hiring this Jewish guy to be his waiter. And he's at least he wasn't like. You know, doing like a Fisher Stevens and putting on like a horrible Indian accent and then drops the accent like we just saw with like, you know, Spanish Moss Monster where it's the French guy and then he's like, oh, yeah, I'm Maury from the Bronx. Well, and let's not forget, let's not forget, Barry the Waiter is played by Barry Gordon, who is very important for my formative years growing up because he did the voice of Donatello on the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles animated cartoon from the 90s. I didn't have that connection. I just remember that he was on... uh he was on the TV show Fish, starring Abe Vigoda, the spinoff from Barney Miller. That's how I know him. But he was in everything back then. I mean, he was a very, you know, he was a busy character actor. And voice actor. He was, he's done so many voices. He, uh, you know, he was on Snorks. And SWAT Cats. And I, I think he does voices for the Teenage Ninja Turtles on the new show as well. Because on the new show... Last year, they had the old turtles on it, and I think they had him come back and do the voice. So, why don't we have an interview with Barry Gordon on this episode? You're you're the one who secures the interviews. Good question. Oh, he'd do it. That's the thing about this show, right? I mean, Richard, you you worked on Supernatural, so this show has had a lasting effect on you. How much of an effect has Kolchak had on like what you do for a living? There's even a part of me that's like listening to that Frank Spotnitz interview and going, you know what, maybe I'll pitch a third version. There's got to be a way to do this. And man, we're all just going to die on those rocks because I don't think you can. It's really tough. And and maybe you should never go, like I said, don't go back. Because I don't know of an actor that is like Darren McGavin. And I don't think you could do it again from that point of view. It's so funny. It's like when you guys play the voiceover narration that uh, Stuart Townsend does for the 2005 reboot, that narration is so different in every way than the narration that Darren McGavin does. Because Darren McGavin is going, you know, it was a hot summer in Chicago and dead bodies were turning up and I showed up to figure out what was going on. And the Stuart Townsend stuff always comes from the point of view of there is darkness in this world and I know all about it. And it's like, that's a totally different character, a character that is like, I am okay with the fact that the supernatural exists and I am already convinced. And the cool thing about Kolchak was he wasn't already convinced. It was always surprising to him. And even though he was open to it, he didn't walk in going, yep, it's a Rakshasa. Thank you very much. All right. I got it from here. Well, and he also didn't have what Sam and Dean have on Supernatural, where they can just go to the internet and look it up. Because we've we've always got, was it Sam on the computer looking stuff up? And like, oh, yeah, there's this, this, and this. Carl, he starts from cold every single time. He has no idea of any of these creatures. Well, and I got to tell you, I mean, you know, even though the guy fired me, that was Eric Kripke's genius. (laughs) He was, he totally embraced the fact that it's like, look, these guys live today. They've seen all the movies that we've seen. They live in the world that we live in. This is just what they do for a living. 
and they're brothers and uh, they drive a cool car and uh, this is what they do, you know, and it's not real complicated. You know, they just was like, okay, here we go. Let's go get, get out the thing, get out the fire, get out the salt. Let's do it. As someone who's worked on the show, do you get the sense that they kind of know that like shows like Kolchak and the X-Files, like are the people who are writing for the show other than yourself, the people that you talk to or that you have talked to in the industry, like are they as in- affected by Kolchak as maybe you have been in in your writing? Well, the people my age are, uh, you know, Chris Carter is my age and a little bit older. And I think Spotnitz is maybe pretty close to exactly my age. So there is an age of people, but it's moving on. The, the people who are, who are the movers and shakers and the up and comers in TV, now their reference points are, are in a way I would imagine like yours, X-Files and overwhelmingly Buffy the Vampire Slayer. That's the one you hear more than anything. People get into this business now, the people who are in their mid-30s, because of Buffy. Bar none. I'm not a huge fan of Buffy. I'm not a huge fan of Joss Whedon either. Well, these are people, I mean, it's like anybody else. Like, I got into TV because of Stephen J. Cannell, you know, because I love Rockford and Greatest American Hero and the A-Team. So I was like, oh, you can do like an action show, but be funny. You don't have to be blank faced about it. You can actually, you know, there can be some humor in that. That's what I loved. And the fact that people come in through the Buffy door doesn't mean that's what they write, but that's the thing that made them go, oh, TV can sort of have a voice. And, you know, I mean, believe me, I, I'm, I'm not beating the drum for Joss Whedon, but people saw that and went, oh, this is a little different. And I think they said that with probably the X-Files too. They're like, well, this is interesting that that man and that woman work together, but they're not shoving it down our throat that get ready they're gonna there's sparks here i mean those sparks were all the invention of the audience for the first i don't know how long you know what i mean i mean it was all i mean we were that was the original ship we were shipping them because they weren't doing it for us so we had to do it for them i mean i was really influenced by fringe that's my show well fringe um like you guys were saying that that one in a way had a colshack aspect because it was very case of the week monster of the week at least yeah, in the beginning, and, then right? kind of yeah and then it kind of just goes it really hits a spot with fringe where i just kind of checked out <laughs> where i'm totally the opposite when it starts going into like the multiple universe thing and just when it really drew, drew you in oh yeah yeah that was where i really started to pay attention that first season was kind of rough for me because i was just like yeah hey, this is monster of the week kind of stuff but then once they got into the mythology I really started to get interested in that show. And then once they moved into the parallel universe and I liked that it was just like little different things, you know, like I can't remember. I think they might've made a reference to back to the future where Eric Stoltz was still Marty McFly or like Kurt Cobain was still alive, things like that. And it was just like, Oh, that's interesting. So just, I thought there was some clever stuff and then bringing in Leonard Nimoy, I thought was a really nice touch as well. Well, I will always be a fan of Leonard Nimoy and anything that he's in. So I, I am, I am with you on that. Again, for me, it's been, you know, the, the through line from Kolshak has always been, you know, Kolshak to the X-Files. And then obviously Darren McGavin in the X-Files, essentially playing Kolshak. I think you're right because I'm having a hard time really thinking of, of like horror TV shows in the eighties that would have bridged that gap that you would have that would be the other point on that graph 
like the, the 80s had some sci-fi, I guess, a little bit, a little bit of Battlestar Galactica, but mostly it was crime shows and and it was it was either it was either the Stephen J. Cannell shows or it was like Glenn Larson. It was Magnum PI. You know, you had Moonlighting, you had Remington Steel, but those were the shows. I don't remember a lot of genre stuff in the 80s. Yeah, there was the reboot of Twilight Zone, but that's different stories every single week. So you didn't have characters that you could invest in. When was that show with, what was it, Chuck Connor, the werewolf show? I'm not sure when that was on. Wait, what was that one? Wait, Lou Diamond Phillips wasn't in that, was he? Am I thinking about something else? It was actually on from 1987 to 1988. The name of the character that Chuck Connors played was Scorzene. Oh, yeah. Jesus. Yeah. That's crazy. Who wrote it? Who was the producer? Producer, oh, this is even stranger because it was produced by Bernadette Joyce. So produced by a woman. Interesting. And executive producer, John Ashley and Frank Lupo. Those are uh, those are Stephen Cannell guys. Frank Lupo and Stephen Cannell created the A-Team. So that's, that's, that's a Cannell show. Well, and of course we know that Frank Lupo must be a pseudonym because Lupo as in... <laughs> no, I'm just kidding, so. Wow, really going for it there. I don't know if Lou Diamond Phillips was in this, but definitely Chuck Connors was in it. And I know that there are issues with this show. I remember my friend Josh talking about this and saying, like, the music that they used in it is all copyrighted, and so they can't release it with the original music. So I think they just kind of dumped it. Right. And it sounds like it only ran for a year, 87 to 88. But the name of the main character, or the name of one of the characters, is a direct reference to Kolshak. I mean, that's crazy. His name's not just Skorzene, it's the whole name from Kolshak. Janos Skorzene, yeah. Yep. All right, well, so so if if that show had run longer, in an alternate universe, that show running, you know, five or six years, and uh, you you guys would be watching episodes of that and comparing it. Right. Well, maybe we can get Brian Thompson to come on and talk to us about it, because he was the villain for a while, it looks like. And, of course, we know he was Alien Bounty Hunter in The X-Files, as well as so many other things. He's also Shao Kahn in Mortal Kombat. <laughs> but and he was also my favorite punk in Terminator. Wash day tomorrow. Nothing clean, right? <laughs> Nothing clean, right? <laughs> oh, God. Brian Thompson, man, he's got just one of those faces. He's got, like, that. that's like the Mads Mikkelsen thing. He's got, like, a Mads Mikkelsen face. It's, like, a very, like you get kind of the characters he's going to play right when you see him. But yeah, I mean, no, it goes Kolshak in the next files. And so it's just kind of now we're getting to the point where like people who are getting into the industry now, like you said, Exiles and Buffy. And then a couple of years from now, it's going to be people getting into this industry are going to be uh, influenced by Supernatural. Well, yeah. I mean, I think they already are because if they were 10 when it started, they're 22 now, so yeah. they, they should be writing their, their spec pilots right about now. Because they're slackers. They weren't writing them when they were 16 like you were. Yeah, I know. What losers. They were all getting laid. It, it, it is funny, though, what what gets people in. And then, and then even later, I mean, now we've got people coming in who are like, oh, you know, Breaking Bad. I mean, they're coming in on, on this wave of, you know, quality cable stuff. And the notion of a show that resets every week is so alien to them as well. It should be because there really aren't like that has not come back into vogue unless you're talking about black mirror and those aren't the same characters. Those are, that's more like twilight zone. So, so I think that the day of the, of the reset of the, the, the long running character 
that wakes up every day and it's as if yesterday. Because that's what freaks people out. It's like, like Vincenzo never goes, Carl, we need to talk. Close the door. What's going on in your life that you keep coming to me with this stuff? Do you need some help? <laughs> he's he's always annoyed, but he never remembers that he was annoyed about the exact same disturbing psychotic behavior for the last 12 weeks. Well, and that's the thing that I've always talked about with this show that they kind of addressed in the 2005 show, which is there's no through line as to why any of this is affecting Carl all the time. Why is Carl running into the Machi Manito? I said Machi Manto again. Uh, why is he running into the werewolf? Why is he running into the zombie? Why is he running into the Rakshasa? Why? And in a show now, they exp- they would have to explain it. There'd have to be something. And they kind of did in the 2005 reboot. I mean, they didn't do it very successfully to some extent. But I mean, to be fair, we also never got to see the full payoff. They canceled the show before it ever got the, the payoff. But at the same token, this show, they, they just like you said, Richard, they just they there's nothing. They never referenced the fact that a, that a couple weeks ago, Kolchak was fighting a werewolf. They never mentioned that a week ago they were fighting an invisible energy monster. And next week, they're not going to mention the Rakshasa. They're just not. Well, in a way, that's why they never had the same police captain or the the same detective, because that would have made it even more uh, glaring. It would have been like, well, now, wait a second. This is the same cop who dealt with all those dead bodies that were drained of blood and bone marrow last week. And I think that's one of the reasons they kept switching it up was to continually put Carl against an outside force that was like, no, you're, you're, you're insane. I don't believe you, thereby making Carl's beliefs our only hope. Carl Kolschak never went and fought these monsters because he knew about the darkness. It was like, people are dying, and I am beating a drum, and no one is listening. And now I realize I am alone. I am the only person who's going to do this, and I don't even, I barely believe it. But Jesus Christ, if I don't do something, no one's ever going to do anything. And so I am alone. And, I, and I'm and i not even owning it like Fox Mulder. Fox Mulder owns it. He's like, well, I kind of know this stuff is out there. Kolshak every week is like, I don't. I'm never going to get used to this. I'm never going to be okay with this, which is really weird and dark and cynical and in a way different. And, you know, I think one of the problems or one of the challenges was when they did the reboot is that they had a fistful of Scullies, but they were afraid to make Kolshak Mulder because they already had Mulder. And it's like, well, he can't be just be Mulder, so we've got to make him different. And so they just sort of made him nothing. I think Fistful of Scullies would be a good name for an X-Files podcast myself. Yeah, well, unfortunately, that X-Files podcast that Camille Nanjiani did essentially brought the show back. And so thanks, not thanks for that. If you believe what... What he kind of said on the podcast, I mean, he was on the show, so they were aware of him and aware of his podcast. I mean, he was on the reboot, the first season of the reboot, he was he was in it. So uh, it was like a bit part, but he was still in it. I don't think that was by accident. I mean, he interviewed some like producers at Fox and they were like, people at Fox know and know what you're doing and that it's like bringing in the numbers like it is. So, and apparently, uh, X, the real reason X-Files came back was because of the streaming numbers on Netflix. 
was Fox was looking at the streaming numbers on Netflix and being like, holy shit, there's an interest here. Let's get back on this. So Wow. I didn't know that. That's amazing. Well, if that's the truth, get ready for a get ready for a friends reunion. Oh Jesus. Oh, as if we're looking for another sign of the apocalypse these days, you know? Okay, so this is a little bit like slightly off topic, but I just had to ask because I found it so weird. So they have so I'm in Pasadena, California, okay? And Pasadena's got a big convention center. And so a couple weekends ago, they had this thing called Alien Con. Okay, so this is basically where people who are really invested in the idea, I mean, like literally that we have been visited by aliens and the government has, you know, crashed disks and alien bodies. I mean, basically sort of the X-Files, but in the real world. So people who write about that stuff and the you know military insiders who saw the bodies, it's sort of like a real life X-Files people. So you mean David Icke? Oh, I know David Icke. He's he's my boy. The lizard people are out to get us. They're oh, they've taken over at the highest levels of power. It's sort of it's that level of belief in it's like they're already here, and so so various authors show up, and and then I mean tons of people show up and listen to panels Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. But here's what blew my mind: on Sunday all day, David Duchovny was there all day. He did the uh, photo op where you get your picture taken with him. He did signings at a different thing. And then he was on a panel. And I'm like, how the fuck? Wait, does David Duchovny not have enough money? He's got to go do fucking alien con? Or is he really into this stuff? Like, I couldn't figure it out. But it was really weird. I mean, he was there embracing it. I mean, does that does, does any of this make any sense to you guys? <laughs> I mean, get in where you fit in, or at least with the people that are already interested, right? Yeah, I mean, I could see Dan Aykroyd being there, but... That Dan Aykroyd docu... Oh my god, the Dan Aykroyd documentary that is filmed in the hotel room with him smoking cigarettes, being asked questions off camera, is cinema verite of the highest quality. Okay, so if you're listening to this right now and you have any interest in a Dan Aykroyd... Now, like current Dan Aykroyd, who's a, a complete crazy, total Looney Tune. Um, if you have any interest in aliens or listening to people like celebrities talk about aliens, which is, again, let's be honest, normal people talk about aliens all the time. But like big time people like rarely talk about aliens because of the stigma attached to it. You need to go on YouTube and you need to search out just type in Dan Aykroyd aliens. So some alien ufologist um, ran into Dan Aykroyd at like a, a UFO convention or through some friends. And I guess, I don't know how, maybe he said, hey, Dan, I've got a bottle of your crystal skull vodka in my room. You want to come sip on it and we can talk about aliens. And it is this guy, this is amateur filmmaker who just points a fucking camera at Dan Aykroyd for like an hour and a half. Dan Aykroyd's sitting there just chain smoking and he's just asking Dan Aykroyd questions about aliens and it is insane it is absolutely nuts it's great just go it's on YouTube it's there I check all the boxes Dan Aykroyd aliens cinema Verde cigarette <laughs> smoke and, well and it's and it's again like like you were saying with David Duchovny it's do does he believe in it or is he just aping for the camera Duchovny is probably just making money off people that love X-Files yeah, no, with Dan Aykroyd, he really believes it. Have you read his book? His family, he's got a whole thing with like his ancestors, his dad, his grandmother, 
where they're, they're, they're psychics and, and, and people with paranormal abilities. I mean, I, I will say this. He comes by it honestly. So I, I have no trouble believing that Dan Aykroyd is totally into this. But Duchovny, I never really knew. Beyond being a sex addict, I didn't really know much about him. That's the Duchovny punchline, right? David Duchovny, sex addict. Tying this all back into Kolchak, it's this same, the fan base of Kolchak and the fan base of X-Files. It's just the bleed over and the influences are so strong that, you know, you look at Kolchak and then you look at Kolchak 2005 and then you look at the shows that came in between it. It's really sad that other shows did Kolchak rebooted better than the actual name brand Kolchak reboot did. Um, totally. Yeah. And that's sometimes what you have to do. You have to evolve. You can't just, you can't just go back and, and, and try to mine that same vein and, and still get gold. It's like, it's like, I, you know, I'll say this and I, I've heard all kinds of opinions about Chris Carter, you know, up, down, left, right. But, but he, he took it to the next step, which was, an ongoing mythology. So you could still have that fun three out of four episodes. And then every fourth episode, you know, we would check in with cigarette smoking man or, you know, whatever, whatever the larger concern was. It's tough. I'm sure that Eric Kripke and everybody did not expect supernatural to go 13 years. I mean, that show was a dream project for, for Eric. And he was over the moon that it got picked up. And he was like, if I can get five years out of this, you know, and, and do the stuff I want to do. But you'll notice that he's not around. I mean, he's not working on that show and hasn't worked on it for years. He did what he could. And then it was like its own thing. And there were other people who could move it down the road. But, but that show started out very much, you know, story of the week, monster of the week. And then at a certain point, when you kind of run out of Machamanitos, you're left with, well, people love these brothers and they love the, the fact that they deal in this stuff. And so let's kind of just get into the long form, almost soap opera storytelling. And, and, and that can take up a bit more of our screen time. And that's what happened. I don't know where Mike checked out of Supernatural, but I checked out probably four or five seasons in because after a while, it just, like you said, the, this, the, it became more soap opera y than monsters. As an X-Files fan, I want the monsters and the soap opera, not one or the other. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I stuck with it for a long time because there was a nice arc that went for five years. And then after that, it was like a year-to-year kind of a thing. And I think I lasted three years. And then part of it I was watching because of one of my best friends, his brother, worked on the show and then, unfortunately, his brother his brother did some really great episodes, but he also did the found footage episode of Supernatural, and that's one of the worst episodes that I ever saw, and that was kind of the end of it for me. I mean, the first two seasons of that show are fantastic. But- well, you know who was on the show at the time as a writer was John Scheiben, who is a, who was you yeah. know big X Files writer, and you were also co executive producer on the first two seasons, right? No, just the first season. And, and frankly, I mean, you know, and this is no secret. I was there for the first half of the first season. I don't know how much you guys know about how TV is run, but there was no room. I'm not sure there ever has been a room. So it was mostly just everyone come up, coming up with their own ideas and then kind of working it out with, uh, with Eric. But when I came on the show, 
I sort of got what the show was about, but tonally, I was like, oh, no, it's much more dramatic. And, you know, all this stuff has to be sort of, you know, I, I was picturing a different show. And so I got through a half a season, but I, I was not as adept as, for instance, John Scheiben at going, oh, I know what this is. Let's just jump right in and get right to work. And so even though I, you know, there was some cool stuff and, you know, Eric was very generous in saying, look, you've written some stuff that I love, but um, I didn't, uh, I did not end up sticking around much more than the first half of the first season. With that one, the moment that I really fell in love with the show was when they took a little bit of a break from it being serious, because I remember it being very serious. And then there was one episode where Dean shot the sheriff and Sam comes in and he says, you shot the sheriff. And Dean turns to him and says, yeah, but I didn't shoot the deputy. And that's when I fell in love with the show was because there was a laugh because they were taking, they weren't taking themselves too seriously. So that's interesting that you say that because then they, but they, they bridge that tone nicely between some serious episodes, but then the jokey ones. But because sometimes they got way too jokey. You mean like with Scooby-Doo? Oh, good Lord. I did watch the Scooby-Doo episode. I will admit that I downloaded because I'm a huge Scooby-Doo fan. And I was like, okay. What season was the Scooby-Doo episode? That just happened like three months ago. Oh, okay, okay, okay. All right, all right. Then, then in that case, I, I, I say you're 13 episodes or 13 seasons in. Do, do, do whatever the fuck you want. <laughs> you want to have fucking Scooby Doo dancing around with Sam and Dean? Sure, why not? Who fucking cares? Look, you know, I mean, the, the fact that the people who were fans of the show at the beginning, their children are watching it now. I mean, that's fine. God bless them. Yeah. And uh, boy, you know what? I don't want to. I I I, uh, I don't want to drag people who love Supernatural, but there is a there's a subsection of fans of the show who, and I, I Mike knows what I'm going to say, who are very invested in the two brothers having sex with each other. It's like I mean they they've addressed it in the show. They actually talked about it in an episode of the show. But like that in and of itself is like this is your fan base. I guess it doesn't matter at this point if you kind of like turn into it and you just don't care. How many more seasons can this sustain? <laughs> this is nothing against anyone. I mean, I, I fully embrace the CW. I love the CW. I work with and for them and I, I really like it a lot. But it is, I, I mean, at a certain point, it's almost like a cable channel. I mean, the, the, the numbers in a weird way are low enough that you're just, you're just playing to the band you know and it's like great we know who's watching us they're all going to get the joke we're not worried about bringing in 10 million new viewers from cbs necessarily so let's just have fun with the people who showed up and and let's let them know we hear them and that turns fans into like hardcore dedicated super fans who are like oh my god they hear us they get it i'll die for this show and that's considered that's considered valuable. Oh yeah, that's gold. I'm sure everyone is striving for those kind of fan interactions and fan support. And and those people and those personalities exist, by the way, all over this planet. I mean, there are people in you know Asia and South America who go to sleep at night hoping those two guys are going to sleep together. So as long as you know, <laughs> as long as Warner Brothers can sell those episodes to every corner of this planet. Uh, we will have new seasons of uh, Supernatural. 
And God yeah. bless those guys for still doing it and not bitching about it. I mean, would you bitch about it? You'd quit in ER after two years because it's like, man, I don't want to only be known as a doctor. And it's like, those guys, and by the way, because they're on the CW, if the show gets canceled tomorrow after 14 years or whatever it is, next pilot season, I guarantee you on the life of my children, Jensen Ackles and uh, Jared Padalecki will have pilots on ABC and Fox. And when those pilots are aired, no one will know who they are. <laughs> they will look at Jensen Ackles playing a hard-boiled cop. And, and, and most of that audience is going to be like, hey, that guy's good. Where, where's he been? Because they're not hanging out. <laughs> they're not hanging out at the hot topic, you know, down in the mall uh, of network TV. They've never been to CW. They don't know what it looks like, and it's all going to be new to them. And these guys are going to have careers forever. Mark my words. I agree. You know, tying this back to Coltec, I feel like that's what they were trying to do with Coltec 2005 was tap into because I mean that was like what a year before Supernatural came out. Same exact year, same exact month. So, like, it, it could have been successful, 2005 Kolshak, but I think it's just, like, like Richard has been imitating this entire podcast, and I think it's, I think it's a dead-on Stuart Towns imitation, is, I mean, I mean, it really is. I mean, that's the way that those episodes always start, is I'll let Richard do his imitation again. I have seen the darkness. I know what lives there. We like to tell ourselves it isn't real, but it is. It's so spot on because it's disinterested and it's aloof and it's removed. And there's none of that with Darren McGavin. You get the sense that Darren McGavin is a, a blue chipper, working man journalist. I mean, you see it in the original TV movie. He's sitting in that hotel room, that dingy hotel room, sitting recording on his little recorder what was going on. Obviously, the TV show ends up kind of adding a little bit of uh, – kind of humor to the show more so than the original movies did. But that sense of being able to connect with a character, talking about Supernatural, talking about X-Files, people watch Kolchak because they connect with Darren McGavin's character. That's the long and the short of it. That's why people watch the show is because you believe that Darren McGavin is Kolchak. And that's the, that's the best sign of any TV show is if you believe that the actor portraying the character, they are one and the same. I, Always, for the rest of my life, will always believe that David Duchovny is Fox Mulder. And that, like you said, Jensen Ackles, Jared Padalecki are Sam and Dean. That's just, that's who they are. And is, are they typecast? Yeah, sure. But you know what? I'd take that any day if that was, if I was as well known for one thing as they have been. It's funny. I was just explaining to one of my coworkers today because he was like, why is Chris Evans and Robert Downey Jr., why are they trying to get out of being Avengers? Why are they so afraid of being Avengers for, you know, 10 more films or whatever? And I'm just like, there's typecasting. You just have to realize, you know, and it, I think it was worse in the past than it is now, you know, like I am Spock, I am not Spock kind of thing. You know, it was tougher for, people in the 60s and 70s, I think, than it is today. I mean, but to your point, Chris, you're saying, you know, you always think of David Duchovny as Fox Mulder. I guess I can kind of see that when there was such a strong connection to that character. But I could, you know, I've, I've seen movies that Robert Downey Jr. and Chris Evans have made in the interim while they've been Captain America and Iron Man, and they hold movies together. You know, the, some of them 
better or worse, like the judge versus, uh, gifted, you know, I loved, uh, gifted was fantastic, but you know, it's just, yeah, it, it's, it's tough to walk that line. Yeah. And you know, Robert Downey Jr. has about $13 billion and he's not a young man. I mean, again, he's, he's my age. So at a certain point, you're like, this is awesome. I made my point. I can go and make giant blockbusters. By the way, I think he's doing like Sherlock Holmes 3. I mean, it's like, okay, we get it. But there's got to be a part of him that's like, okay, maybe I just want to go, you know, hang out with my kids or have some kids. I don't know if it's got kids and just sort of like, you know, go get on a yacht or something and do a movie a year and win an Oscar, do Chaplin again. I don't know. But it's like, like at a certain point, what, you know, if you're not enjoying it, don't do it. Like Tom Hanks clearly enjoys being on a set. Robert De Niro clearly loves being on a set. So they will do every movie in the world. And some of them aren't so great. And, but when you're doing a Marvel movie, that's not, you're not getting a lot of, that's a pretty thankless thing in a weird way. Cause you're playing against a green screen and some motion capture people and you're not doing a scene about him breaking up with some woman in getting a divorce as a middle-aged man. And maybe that's what he wants to do. And he's got $13 billion. So why not? It's interesting. When he first got, quote unquote, rediscovered, like after Iron Man became that huge hit and it was finally like, oh, yeah, Robert Downey Jr., he's not playing around anymore. You know, like he, he had done a couple roles up to that point, like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, where it was just like, oh, this guy. He's, he's fucking awesome. And then he's Iron Man. It was like the perfect, I mean, just, it was, that role was basically written for that guy. The whole idea of, you know, his troubled past and, you know, Tony Stark in the comics having substance abuse problems and kind of finally getting his shit together. So it was like, okay, great. Yeah, this is perfect. And then being able to ad lib and all of these playing to, to Robert Downey Jr.'s strengths. Once he got that money, there was, a moment, and Chris is going to laugh about this, and you're, you you might shit your pants, Chris, so hold on. He wanted to turn around and finally bring Travis McGee to the big screen. That was like one of his dream projects was to be Travis McGee. I don't think he would have made a good Travis McGee, but it's interesting. Like He was trying at that point to get that off the ground, and then almost immediately it was he – like it came and went, and then it was supposed to go to, and this is even worse, Leonardo DiCaprio. And then thank God that stopped. And then that project's been dead in the water again for quite a few years. But I thought it was interesting that he almost jumped from Iron Man right into Travis McGee. And that could have been his series. You know, that could have been him for 13, 14 movies if he had played his cards. Well, right. let's not forget. Uh, you mentioned, you, you forgot to mention, first off, Darren McGavin did the best narration for the audiobooks for Travis McGee. Again, tying back to Kolchak. And also, most recently, it was Christian Bale who was going to play Travis McGee. Also, not necessarily great casting. No, not, not good. But, uh, you know, back me up on this one, Mick G. That's all I'm going to say. Typecasting must suck when you're sitting on piles of money, Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, I, I like, like, look, he, that guy could probably, do whatever he wants, but it's funny, the Travis McGee thing almost sounds like, like, didn't he do, he did that Shane Black movie, didn't he? Like, was it Kiss Kiss Bang Bang? It almost feels like it's in that milieu. Like, I, like, I think if he and Shane Black decided, hey, every couple of years, let's just do some private eye movie, you know, 
like it's sort of feeding whatever that was because that that almost over like if that's his big character that that's where I go with it. Yeah, I'm one of the few people that didn't like the nice guys, and I was just like, yeah, I'd rather watch Kiss Kiss Bang Bang again. I'm not really a Ryan Gosling fan, and especially like I love Russell Crowe, but I just wasn't buying him in that movie. So it was just like, yeah, give me give me more gay Paris with. Val Kilmer and give me more of Robert Downey Jr. Their chemistry, everything about those guys hit in that movie. So I have to ask you guys that there was a bit of narration in the script, and I don't know if it actually made it to the end of this episode. Did he talk about what happened to the Indian after he left him? Because I don't remember hearing that in the episode. No, there wasn't any. Yeah, it was in the script, and there, there was also a little chunk of narration about how he, how how Carl Kolschak reassuringly tells us he doesn't like Nazis. Right in the middle of the episode, <laughs> he's like the Blues Brothers. He hates Illinois Nazis. But there's this little run, and and there's actually film like in the episode he. We see him driving and then driving up and parking outside the Indian restaurant and then walking up to it. And it's there's music score, but no narration. But there was narration in the script where he goes, look, you know, I'm no fan of Nazis and where Nazis are death festers. But but, you know, I needed to go check this guy out, whether he's a Hindu Nazi or not. So I decided to go to his restaurant. So that is missing. And then the aftermath of that. Of, of what happens to the old guy and, and, and how he's heard that there have been other, you know, rumblings on the coast, you know, San Francisco and stuff like that. That stuff is missing. Yeah, you're totally right. That would have been nice, though. I do like the way that they wrap this up with they introduce now Miss Emily is back or she's it's interesting that we finally have like the advice column coming back from all the way in the earliest episodes of the show like that was the whole reason how carl figured out what where the ripper was like way back in um, what was that the first episode and now here we have miss emily and she was the one who wrote the letter all the way back then and now she's answering letters and now she's working as the advice column this is a very thankless job but it does manage to hook her up with the date with a guy who seems to have a uh, a problem that he is he's basically a Lothario who's beating off the ladies because they are just all over him because apparently he knows how to please so Miss Emily uses that information in order to get a date which I thought was pretty great I mean this episode is almost the Miss Emily episode and I'm really happy about that I totally agree it really is and and it really I mean that family of Carl and Tony and Emily and even Ron in this episode really feels like, like really likable. Like they're not just sort of yelling at each other. They're kind of a family in a really appealing way. And that's, that's one of the things I like. Did you guys like the fact that this old Indian guy is basically Carl Kolschak, like from another culture, <laughs> like, you know, a few years older? Yeah, he is, isn't he? Though he kind of knows more of what he is. I think Carl is still kind of unsure of what his fate is at this point. Yes, absolutely. I love that. And I just, I, I, and I love that moment where it's, it's almost like, would you take over for me? Would you just spend the rest of your life traveling the earth, you know, for the advantage of maybe killing three or four of these things over the next six decades of your life? I mean, it was so cool. It was like, oh my God, he's, there's another, 
another version of Kolshak out there. Um, I mean, that almost felt like something you could come back to or somebody could come back to. But I re- that really appealed to me. Richard, before we uh, wrap up, I had one question for you because my wife was a huge fan of Second Chance. That is awesome. I don't remember. It, did that show wrap up or is it still like happening or what's going on with that? I'm, I'm probably, it was probably like many years ago, but I have this like, oh, it was just last week that we watched an episode. I'm sure that's not the case. Yeah, no, it feels like last week that I was working on it. That show is a master class in what is going on in network television right now. I mean, it's almost like, you know, we'll talk offline. It's almost worthy of its own podcast. But I will tell you that my experience working on that show was very good. I loved the other writers. I loved uh, working with Rand Ravitch. It was it was an interesting experience working with the cast um, who were – who sort of came from, who came to acting from a million different angles. Uh, so I had a great experience working on it, but the bottom line is that is a show that the network every single week decided it was something else. And, and, and it was like, it's an ensemble. No, it's an FBI show. No, it's a, it's a family show. No, it's a crime of the week show. No, it's this. And, and we, we were placed in a position of constantly chasing, you know, the, the, the sort of rabbit that was jumping all over the field and we were never allowed to march in one direction. And I think to the degree that the show feels cohesive is somewhat miraculous. And I know there are fans out there that responded to one or two or three of the conceptual pieces that were put together in a Frankenstein like fashion to create a Frankenstein show but but it was but but the it, behind the scenes it, it was a constant question of well what what target are we aiming at this week that we're showing up and and so it was a, it was a little bit tricky and at a certain point it became untenable and and unfortunately it couldn't continue but i had great hopes for the show and and it was a lot of fun working on it i mean i mean that that writer room was beautiful we all loved each other and had a great time for the for the six and a half months we were there. So, um, so that, uh, that was that, but you know, again, offline, you know, uh, you know, you stuck around rabbit. You'd hear, you would hear an amazing story of the way a single network show evolves from the minute he pitched it and sold the pitch to the final episode a year and a half later. My God. You will be happy to know that I have seen, like, I know the thing with writers, right? Is that, You've worked on probably so many things, but your name isn't on them. But as far as the the movies that your name is on, I have seen Under Siege 2, Dark Territory, and The Mothman Prophecies in the theater, sir. Oh, yeah. Well, you're my hero. I always tell people, I'm taking everyone who ever saw The Mothman Prophecies in the movies, taking them out to lunch one by one. I've only got a few left. I'll take that rain check. I am so proud of you. It's funny. Here's what people say. Because obviously, I mean, uh, and again, those are two big discussions too that I could bore you with. But, um, but you know, Mothman clearly sort of more my soul in almost every way than than what Under Siege Two became. But when I'm just moving throughout the world, Under Siege Two is the one that people have seen, and usually it's a guy, and usually that guy is in his forties, and usually what that guy says to me is, "You wrote Under Siege Two." Me and my dad love that movie. It's like this thing, apparently, that bonds 
sons and fathers. You're damn right it is. <laughs> I swear to God, I have watched so many fucking Steven Seagal movies in the past two years with my dad. Oh my God. Steven Seagal is... Okay, regardless of the crazy asshole he is now, back in the day, he was probably a crazy asshole then too, but the the the, the person that Steven Seagal is in those movies is just goddamn his outfits and his fighting style and just everything about it is amazing. Wait, Chris, have you read Seagology, that book by Vern? I I haven't, but I know that it exists. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to go out on a limb, get Seagology and just read, just start reading it. If you're not into it within the first 20 pages, you're not into it. But my guess is if you read the first 20 pages, you're going to go, oh, I get what this is because it's not a satire. It's a weirdly affectionate and at the same time, ruthless and funny summation and view of these movies. It's really worth it. I, I think you'd enjoy it. Well, I mean, as long as they talk about Fire Down Below, the best Steven Seagal film, where he plays an EPA agent, of all things, of all unbelievable things. I had a case of Fire Down Below once, but I got a shot and I got rid of it. <laughs> I had I had Fire Down Below from eating Indian <laughs> It's that beef curry. Yeah, was, it, was it the, the Muscoom Beck? The Glimmer Man and Fire Down Below. You've got to check it out. You've got to check it out. And, and again, one day offline, I'll tell you about the one day that I met Stephen Seagal, a day I will never forget, no matter how hard I try. So, Richard, what are you working on these days? I am working on a show called Titans, and it's going to be the, uh, the premiere show on the new DC Universe uh, streaming channel uh, that you may have heard about. It's going to debut sometime this fall, fall of 2018. And it is dedicated to the world of DC Comics. So if you're a fan of Teen Titans, um, this is sort of the adult streaming, you know, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, adult version, you know, of the characters of, you know, Dick Grayson as Robin, Starfire and Beast Boy and, and Raven. And uh, it's high budget, great actors, really beautifully produced. And uh, I've been working on that for the last year. And um, uh, as soon as it premieres, I assume we'll do a second season. So uh, that, that's that been the recent past, and it's been fun. Yeah, I have heard of the new channel, and I'm very excited for that. So are you uh, all into writing dark, gritty stuff? We're back No, that's the funny thing. It's like, <laughs> I, man, Mike, really, you're really going to go there. You're, you asshole. <laughs> Wait, where are we going? Are we going somewhere I'm not aware of? Well, it's just, I mean, that's the whole, that's the condemnation of the DC film universe is that it's uh, dark. And I know. Gritty. It's dark and it's gritty. Believe me, I'm not a fan. I mean, like, if you talk about something like a character like Superman, I, I want a joyful Superman. I do not want a grim, dark, joyless Superman. That's my personal opinion. This show is definitely dramatic and, and even sort of straddles the line of horror in, in, in certain aspects. And, and yes, Dick Grayson is a complicated character and he has a, you know, a history with 
Batman and all that stuff. But when you add in Beast Boy and and even you know a, a sort of young version of uh, Raven, it, it's ultimately a show about people who are outcasts searching for a family and searching for a a, a context. To, to lead their lives. And so like, I, I'm happy writing dark stuff as long as it's about people struggling with darkness and trying to find their footing in, and, and, and not be consumed. And it sounds like a weird distinction, but what I, what I'm not interested in is I am dark and I love it and I'm perfecting my darkness and I wear it on my sleeve or I wear it like a badge then it's an end point, and then I'm not as interested. So, in other words, I like the Stephen King version of darkness, where it, where you're burdened with it, and you're trying to reclaim your humanity somehow, and that's the battle. Does that make sense? But the real question is, can we get can we get the people who make the movies on the same page? Firing Zack Snyder was the right step. I'll do see it. what I can do, okay, Chris? I'll see what <laughs> do I can it. Do. There's this podcaster like out in, I don't know, bumfuck Egypt, and he wants you to change the way that the movies are being done. Can we do that, guys? Is that is this the same guy who wants to remake Return of the Last Jedi? All of these complaints are seen as engagement. See, you're engaged. Yes. You're not dismissive. You, you've got a stake in it. You well, you wouldn't if you didn't care at all. You wouldn't care, but the fact that you care keeps you coming back to be hurt over and over again. You're welcome. Speaking of being hurt, Chris, what is going on at the Culture Cast these days? Just watching movies, you know the usual uh, new movies. Uh, so this would be what July, August. So we're nearing the end of summer, which means the summer movies have come and gone. August is kind of the the last gasp of summer movies in the States. So we're wrapping that up and uh, hopefully entertaining the five people that listen to the podcast. So uh, what about you, Mike? What is going on over at the projection booth? Actually, we just covered a black exploitation film, talked about the Mac, which is something that you will have to check out. If you haven't watched that one already, Chris, it is pretty fantastic. And yeah, we, like I said, we've been all over the map. I'm still catching up from last year. So won't really be doing any sort of theme months until September, uh, this year. So that's coming up, which means that I really need to sit down and watch or sorry, read Marquetta Lazarova. So that one, I'm sure that's at the top of your reading list as well, right next to Seagology. I'd rather watch Seagology. At least that sounds fun. Doesn't sound like dry Russian literature. I I read Dostoevsky in high school. I think I've read enough. I read Crime and Punishment. So, well, this is all Czech stuff. So it should be. It's like it's like Russian light. Yeah, that enough of that. Read Vern. Read something fun. I mean, at this day and age, I don't have to read anything that I don't want to. It's like Beavis and Butthead said. If I wanted to read, I would have stayed in school. Guys, I cannot tell you how great this was. I had the greatest time. And I, I also cannot compliment you enough on the quality of your discussion of these episodes and the quality of the interviews you've had and the music, the way you weave music in. I just, I, I'm a huge fan. You, you guys, you're, you're doing the Lord's work. And so I thank you for it. And thank you so much for letting me come on and have some fun with you been a real pleasure and speaking of music i do want to thank john walker for doing our theme song that is always a pleasure playing that and come on back next month guys and we will have a discussion of 
The Source, Part 1 and 2, will be back to Kolchak 2005 territory. I don't know if you would be strong enough to handle that, Richard. I don't know if uh, if you could take that thrilling voiceover twice. The words showing up on screen. Yeah, it's going to be good. How freaking bizarre. Well, look, I'll, I'll, you know, you guys have roped me and I will watch the episodes and it's, it's opening a bizarre, bizarre world of Kolchak for me, but I've got to do it. So, so, you know, I will watch those episodes and I can't wait to hear, uh, hear you do the, uh, the back half of the uh, season of the original Kolchak. It will be fun. I'm looking forward to finally seeing Mr. Ring pretty soon again. So I hear that's one of the best ones. People are always talking about it. And we had such good luck with Alford Neal and John Hoff last time with Bad Medicine that um, I'm, I'm excited to see something else that they wrote again. And I'm looking forward to watching more 2005 Kolchak. Excellent. Yes, Hopefully sir. we are past Malum territory. Oh, dear. You said it again. I did. Triggered. I'd like to have told Miss Emily that the Rakshasa appeared to me as her, according to the legend, it meant that I trusted her. But then I would have also had to tell her that I shot a steel arrow straight into her. I don't think she would have appreciated that. But in the final analysis, what's the difference? As long as we all trust each other, why should anyone's feelings be bruised? And if you happen to be walking along a lonely country road one night and you see your favorite aunt coming toward you, good luck to you, too. 